0: You guys know if you're leaving New Freedom, you drive out 851, coming up to a railroad, coming up to Captain Bob's, there's a few houses on the right-hand side of the road there, and there's a bank. The the road kind of goes down off a bank, but there's houses that are just sort of perched on the edge there, right? And, and they're kind of built into the side of the hill. They're not really founded on anything. And a few years ago, you might remember, I drove by there one morning and there was a house, you remember this, that had just kind of fallen off that cliff. Like it had just fallen over. I think, I think it was unoccupied. I hope it was abandoned, but it literally just fell over and crumbled off the side of this little embankment. Why, why is that? Because it didn't have a foundation, right? It, It wasn't, it wasn't solidly built into anything. And, and, and this house just literally fell over. It wasn't grounded on anything solid, right? It's like that parable that Jesus told about the foolish person. A foolish person builds his house on the sand, right? No, no solid foundation to ground it in. And what happens when the rain comes, when the winds blow, when the rains come and the winds blow and the waters rise, that house that's built on the sand just gets washed away. But Jesus says, no, no, a wise man, a wise man builds his house on what? On the rock. On a solid foundation, firmly rooted and deep in the ground. So when the rains come and the wind blows and the floodwaters rise, what happens to that house? It stands firm. It's not going anywhere. It's grounded. And Jesus said that the solid foundation that we need to build our lives on is what? It's the rock of his teaching, his gospel. And it's not just a matter, Jesus said, of hearing the truth, but believing it, living it, obeying his words, he said. And so our theme, as we are in the book of Second Thessalonians, is the call to stand firm. That's what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. Because we live in an age, friends, where it is raining, it's raining hard, and the winds are blowing, and they're blowing hard, and the floodwaters seem to be rising, and your life is either going to stand or fall. Your peace, your joy, your hope, your purpose, your family will either stand or fall based upon its foundation. And so the question is, is are you grounded in Christ? Are you holding on to Him? Are you firmly rooted in His life and His truth? Are you walking in obedience, holding on to the the truth of Christ in the midst of the storm, in the midst of those crashing waves? Can we stand firm by God's grace? We're going to hear that call again this morning as we begin chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. You can turn there now if you have a Bible, page 989, if you're using one of the blue hardback Bibles from the back. Now, you might remember if you were with us in the fall in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, he answered some questions about the Lord's second coming. But now in the church community, there's some confusion that's building. And what's happening is there are rumors and false information and even deceptive teaching that are floating around in Thessalonica and in the church related to the second coming. And so we're going to read this morning in chapter two, how the Christians are being shaken and, and, and Paul, Silas, and Timothy have written this letter to clarify some things about the return of Jesus, to remind them to stand firm. Don't be alarmed. Don't be shaken. And our big key idea for this morning is to hold on to the truth. Hold on to the truth, we'll read in this passage. And, and again, this, this week, if you were with us last week, again this week, we're, we're weighing into another very heavy, very complicated passage this morning. And uh, somebody came up to me before church as we were getting going and uh, started asking me questions about the, the service and, and, the, and the message. And what do you think about this? I said, you just just wait, just wait. We'll get there. But he said, well, I'm praying for you. So thank you for your prayers. One commentator that I read this week said that this passage we're going to read this morning, he said, is probably the most obscure and difficult in all of Paul's writings. Now, if you know the New Testament, you know that Paul is already some of the most difficult writing, but this passage here may be the most difficult and obscure passage that Paul wrote. So we've got to deal with that, so we're going to ask for the Lord's help. And there are some challenging topics and some unanswered questions in our passage this morning, but hear this, the main point of the passage, the main point of God's word to us this morning is very, very clear, and it's this, hold on to the truth. It's as simple as that. Hold on to the truth. And we're going to look at that in three sections this morning. I'm just going to give you our three big picture ideas this morning. You can put those up on the slide. First of all, is it don't be shaken. Don't be shaken by rumors. And there are rumors floating around today just as there were in Paul's day. Don't be alarmed by the revolt against God because the revolt that we'll read about this morning has already started. Don't be alarmed. And thirdly, don't be lured. Don't be lured away by the latest and greatest deception. Don't be lured away by some supposed pleasure in the world. Hold on to the truth. That's where we're going this morning. So we're going to pick up in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and let's pause and ask for the Spirit's help. Holy Spirit, we do ask now that just as you've promised, that you would lead us and guide us into truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity and its power. We thank you that it is, it is purposeful and practical, that it, it speaks deeply into our lives. And we ask now for your grace, Lord, as, as, as we look to your word. Pray that you would fill my heart and my mouth and my words, that you would fill our ears, that we would hear your word to us. That you would not allow confusion or discouragement or, or, or disconnection, but that you would only allow faith and, and understanding and, and hope and wisdom in this place now. And ultimately, God, our prayer is that you would give us perseverance to hold on to the truth, to stand firm in Christ. A perseverance and a commitment that we can only have Because of Jesus, because of His saving work, and so come Holy Spirit now and stir faith in us. We ask in His name. Amen. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, neither by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all the power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion So they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Amen. Amen. The word of God, the word of God in verse one, Paul, Silas and Timothy write. Now, look, as far as questions, as far as concerns that you have about the day of Jesus coming again, about the day when he returns and we are gathered together to be with him. They say there in verse two, they plead, in fact, look, brothers and sisters, don't be quickly shaken. Don't don't be alarmed. Don't be troubled. Don't be unsettled about the misinformation and rumors that you're hearing the false teaching that's going around in your church. Don't be shaken. They say that word shaken is used of like a boat that's been tied up but the wind and the waves have have crashed against it and now it's breaking free and it's it's shaking in the water. Don't be unsettled, they say. Don't be unsettled by these alleged prophetic spirit or a message that you hear or a letter that's supposedly from us that's alleging, alleging. well, the day of the Lord has already come. Now, you know, in the, in the Scripture, the day of the Lord going back into the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is that phrase used to speak about the day when the Lord will come to earth in judgment to destroy evil in restoration, to make all things new in a new creation, the end of, of of time as we know it now, the day of the Lord. Paul says, don't let anybody allege that the day has already come. Because apparently what, what's happening, from what we can gather, is that misinformation, false information has been spreading in the church, troubling the Thessalonians. And, and whoever was spreading these rumors was even claiming, oh yeah, we heard this from Paul and Silas and Timothy. Yeah, yeah, we ran into them down at the market, you know, we were traveling and they, they told us to come tell you. And so they're spreading these rumors and they're saying they're coming from Paul. Paul's not too happy about that. And they began to think, maybe we missed the return of Jesus. And their faith was was shaken, and they're thinking to themselves, did he come back? What happened? Did we miss him? Is that why we're facing so much affliction and persecution? Because maybe he's already come, but then they're like, wait a minute. Paul taught us that, that his return was supposed to be visible. Why didn't we see him? And now look, verse 3 makes it very clear that these rumors that the day of the Lord had already come was a lie. It was not the teaching of God. Now you think for a minute, well, what could have possibly motivated these people to try to deceive them in this way? Maybe they themselves believed it. Or maybe they were just looking to stir up confusion in the church. Maybe they were thinking, well, if we can confuse them, then maybe we can gain our own following, right? And maybe people will begin following us if we spread these rumors. Perhaps they were looking at the the suffering and persecution that we've talked about going on amongst the Christians in Thessalonica and and, and using that to convince them, well, look, Jesus must have left you. Look at all the hardships you're going through. He must have already come. You must have been left behind. But Paul's going to go on to clarify, as we read, that that there's a time of great rebellion that will occur before Jesus returns, not after. And he reminds them of something in verse 1 that he taught extensively in the first letter. That the return of Jesus will be loud, it'll be visible, it'll be undeniable, that all believers, both living and dead, will be gathered together, raised up in resurrected bodies with Jesus, and that no follower of Christ will be missed. And he brings that to their attention in verse one, and I'm assuming they'll be, re- they would be reminded of what he taught them in the first letter. And yet there's confusion. These rumors have caused them to be confused, to be unsure. Their faith was shaken. We know a little something, don't we, about rumors in our day and age. Rumors abound and flourish. And I think it is easier than ever to spread misinformation in our day, to spread lies. Because with a group text, with a Facebook post, with a tweet, you can reach dozens of people and those dozens can each reach dozens and it spreads exponentially. And in an instant, you can shut down a school, you can destroy a church, you can end a career. You don't believe me? Just think back to two years ago when people started saying there's not going to be enough toilet paper. This supply chain is going to get held up. You better go get some. To-. And what happened? We, I don't ever think there really ever was a toilet paper shortage. I just think people overreacted. Everybody went and bought up toilet paper. And what happened? The rumor created the, the very misinformation that it was seeking to spread. And so there's always rumors, there's always allegations, there's always troubling news that threatens to upset and to shake society and specifically our faith in Christ. What are those that affect us in our time? We look through the history of the church over the centuries. There has been misinformation that's spread about the return of Jesus. Jesus. Sometimes at various points in history, people have even claimed a specific date. Well, I have a secret knowledge about when Jesus is going to return and, and, and entire churches and movements have begun to set their hope on a specific date and that date came and went and Jesus didn't come. Imagine how that would shake someone's faith. And so rumors about the return of Jesus continue to, to trouble Christians. But for many of us, there are other things that shake us. You may begin to hear about family or friends that Have returned to some sort of historic sect of the Christian faith claiming that there are certain religious rituals that, you know, you can't just be an evangelical and believe in Jesus. There are certain religious rituals that that are historic and you have to do these things and these practices and jump through these hoops if you truly want to know God and you have to add these rituals to your faith in Jesus. Or maybe there are rumors and allegations, some distorted doctrine and doctrines have been spread claiming that hell is not real. Or claiming that Jesus is, is only one way to get into heaven. Or claiming that, you know, Christians just need to have enough faith and then we'll never be sick. And any illness or condition that you have is, is due to a lack of faith. Or maybe there's rumors spreading with this sort of toxic mix of, of religion and politics. And, and and in our day and age, there's some confusion about our identities but between Christians and Americans. And for some people, somehow, if you're a Christian, you're an American. If you're American, you're a Christian. And some people would claim that America somehow is God's new chosen nation. And we see this rise in our day of of what some have called Christian nationalism. You know, that if we just get the right political leaders in office, that that America will be redeemed, that America will become the savior of the world. Rumors, misinformation, leading us away from the historic Christian faith that we find in the scriptures. Maybe for some it's, it's scientific discoveries and you read in some journal or you read some post. About some new scientific discovery that's claimed evidence, you know, in astrology or biology or, or something that they've dug up. That's claimed evidence. See, the world is purely materialistic. There is no spiritual realm. In the Bible's view of creation, pff, that didn't happen. Look at what evidence we've found. And it's claimed that it contradicts what we believe about the Bible's perspective on creation. Or maybe it's social positions. We see all sorts of social positions that are spreading in our day and age. These rumors that are claiming to mix up gender, changing gender, advocating for any and all sexual preferences that people have. And these ideas push against the Bible's teaching. And, and they claim that the biblical perspective is outdated, that it's incompatible with human experience. Can't you see the reality that people live? And, and there are a host of wild theories, claims. Some of them have to do with some latest catastrophe. Catastrophe. Right? Some catastrophe that's going to come and destroy culture, or some say even destroy civilization. And maybe it's politics, or war, or climate change, or COVID, but these are all forms of just saying the sky is falling, right? And then, of course, there, there are people that hear, hear this perspective, and they take the counter-perspective. And then there are these conspiracy theories about the other side, mis- presenting misinformation, And all these rumors and theories are happening in sort of the echo chamber of our social media and our search history bubble so that each time we hear this rumor it just bounces off the wall of our own little internet bubble and it just gets louder and louder and louder. And what maybe started off as some side thing that you read about or heard about grows and grows and grows until now you're troubled and now you're shaken. And maybe it is a a political thing or a social thing or a theological thing. And there's controversies and scare tactics that stir up fear, stir up mistrust, create distractions for us, create discouragement for us that undermine, ultimately undermine our sure, sure footing in the truth of God. And the call of God's word this morning is don't be shaken. Don't be alarmed by these rumors. What happened to the Thessalonians that they were led astray, led astray by something that contradicted the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. And we cannot be led astray into fear, into mistrust. We have to keep ourselves grounded on the rock of Christ. Now that doesn't mean we just put our head in the stand and ignore, you know, any news or updates or ignore what's going on in culture around us. No, no, I believe as Christians we need to stay informed. We need to investigate when we hear a new, a new scientific claim or investigate a new proposition or investigate what's going on in politics. Yes, we need to be discerning, but discerning means we're not blowing in the wind of every new rumor or theory that comes across our news feed. We need to ground ourselves in the solid teaching of God's Word on the firm foundation of His saving faith. Our hope is in the Gospel. On the once and finished work of Christ who, who lived, who died on the cross for our sins, who rose again to new life. A historic resurrection who is returning one day to make all things new. We need to ground ourselves in the truth of God's sovereign plan. That regardless of what wind of doctrine is blowing, regardless of, of what is stirring in our world and our culture today, God has a plan. God is sovereign. Nothing is taking Him by surprise. And nothing will happen. Nothing will unfold. Outside of his good and perfect will. As we're going to read next week in in verse 15. We're called to stand firm. It says there in verse 15. And hold on to the traditions of the Christian faith. And I want to tell you this morning that the the traditions of our faith are not antiquated. They are not old fashioned. They have stood the test of time for a reason. Because they are from God. Amen. And his truth is what we build our life on. And that's what we return to every day. That's what we we hold to in the midst of whatever crisis comes tomorrow. We hold on to the truth of God's Word. That's what the the authors of Thessalonians are reminding them of in verses 1 and 2. But we see in verse 3 that there is a very real risk that they will be deceived. And so we come to our, our second reminder today that not to be alarmed by the revolt against God. There is a revolt. Verse 3 says, don't let anyone deceive you about the misinformation of the return of Jesus or deceive you in any other way. See, the day of the Lord hasn't come. In fact, it won't come, it says in verse 3, unless the rebellion, the great revolt comes first when this man of lawlessness is revealed. Later, we read he's called the lawless one. But here he's called a man, a human, leading most commentators to believe that whoever this mysterious lawless one is, he's a human leader. A leader that will come and stand in defiance against God's authority, that will have no regard for God or his law, that will lead others astray to revolt against God. He's also called there in verse three, the son of destruction, because he will bring destruction with him. Now, look, here's the reality. Since the time of Adam and Eve, since they broke God's command, humanity has been in rebellion against God. But what the scriptures teach is as the day of the Lord, the day of Christ's return draws near, there will be an increase in sin, an increase in hostility. And in verse four, we see that this leader of the revolt will oppose God. He will exalt himself against every other so-called God, every other object of worship. In fact, this lawless one in an ultimate act of defiance, we read there in verse four that he will sit on the throne in the temple of God and he will declare himself to be God. Can you imagine? I am God. Now this is an abomination that was prophesied about going all the way back into the Old Testament book of Daniel. Jesus himself talked about it. Now commentators differ on exactly how verse 4 is going to play out. Some see this as a reference to the man of of lawlessness actually going to the the temple in Jerusalem and calling himself to be God. Which of course would, would mean that the temple in Jerusalem would need to be rebuilt. Others say, no, no, the reference to a temple is a reference to the new temple. The church is now in the New Testament called the temple of God. So maybe this is man of lawlessness is somehow going to infiltrate the church and sit on the, the head of the church and declare himself to be God. Others see it as a reference to the heavenly temple. Something happening in the spiritual realm. Regardless of how this specifically plays out, what we can see is this is a clear act of defiance. A clear act of defiance against the living God. Now, many scholars who read about this lawless one in 2 Thessalonians see this as the same figure that the Apostle John wrote about in his letters. In, in John's letters, he talked about the Antichrist. And the Apostle John would say that there are many Antichrists, in other words, enemies of God that are Antichrist, Jesus, people that, that stand against Jesus. But John would say that one day, the Antichrist will come. And there will be a final deception, deception, a final revolt. We can see in John's visions in Revelation in chapter 13, the vision of a terrible beast. And so it seems likely that all of these different figures are referring to the same evil leader of the revolt. That in the final days of time, before the return of Jesus, this evil one, this Antichrist, this lawless one will rise up. Now ultimately... This enemy is the personification of, of who? The great enemy of God, Satan. Verse 9 makes it clear that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. Now Satan is a Greek word that just means adversary. This is our one ultimate adversary. This angelic being that rebelled against God, that, that seeks to lead all of humanity astray. And this man of lawlessness will rise up as Satan's agent. And it's as though he's making one final, desperate, futile attack to try to somehow overthrow God. Satan, in his deceived, perverted thinking, still somehow thinks that he can win. Still somehow thinks that he can overthrow the God of the universe. That he can lead people away from the Lord. Now look, throughout history, anytime there's been a, a wicked dictator that's risen up, that's defied God... Anytime somebody's exerted terror, people kind of latch on and they identify him as the man of lawlessness. And there have been dozens and dozens, maybe even hundreds throughout the last 2,000 years of history of people that have said that that must be him or that must be him. You know, in the Roman Emperor Nero, well, he must be the land of lawlessness. Some some claimed that Muhammad that founded Islam was the man of lawlessness or Napoleon or or basically every American president at one point or another has been accused by some group of people as the Antichrist. The Roman Catholic Pope is often at the top of the list for who this Antichrist might be, or or Hitler, or Mussolini. It's almost as if in every generation, Satan raises up some wicked, awful leader, Satan somehow thinking in his mind, maybe this time the revolt will be successful, maybe this time I can spread global revolt. But what happens each time... This leader's reign of terror ends because why? It's not yet God's timing. Satan is always going to be raising up antichrists, but the antichrist won't come until the end. Jesus himself taught these things in Matthew 24. See, Paul's doctrine here is grounded in what Christ taught about a great tribulation that would happen at the end of the age, a persecution of God's people. There would be an increase of lawlessness, Jesus says. There will be deception by false prophets that were going to produce counterfeit signs. And the abomination that is referenced in Daniel's prophecy, Jesus referenced. And all of this, Jesus said, would take place before he returned from the clouds of heaven. He said, I'll come in glory with the angels of heaven at the sound of the trumpet. And Jesus reiterated when he taught his disciples in Matthew 24, that our response to all of this is to stay awake, be ready. Be alert and don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed when it comes. I should take a minute and point out that that there are other Christians that hold to the idea that Jesus' return is actually going to come in two phases. That first Jesus will return and gather together all Christians to Himself and then will be this great rebellion. Then this man of lawlessness will come after Christians have been raptured up into heaven. And after this time of great tribulation, then Jesus will return for a final victory. And in this concept, Christians avoid the period of tribulation. And and we love these brothers and sisters, and we'll be seated with them in heaven. But but here at Living Hope, the elders believe that Scripture teaches only one return of Christ. And that Christians are not exempt. We are not exempt from the suffering and from the great tribulation that we will face before Christ returns. We see in our passage that Paul reminds and he corrects them in verse 5 about these things. He's like, look guys, don't you remember? I taught about this when I was with you. Hello? Why are you getting misled? Don't, don't you remember? We talked about this already. And he goes on in verses 6 to 8 to say, look, this, this lawless one, yes, is coming at the end of time, but even now, he says in verse 6, even now the work of lawlessness is already active in our world, isn't it? And now he calls it the mystery of lawlessness because it's sort of nameless and faceless. There's this entity that's sort of slowly eroding our world. But someone is restraining the rebellion, we read there in 6-8. to Someone's holding back, even now, holding back the rebellion of humanity. But when the time in God's plan is up, the one who is right now restraining evil, because you think it's bad now? God's holding it back. But there's going to Come a time when the one who's restraining it will step out of the way, and this man of lawlessness, this personification of evil, will be fully revealed and unleashed on earth. Now, again, just as people ask, Well, who's the man of lawlessness? People say, Well, who's the one restraining? The man of lawlessness. And there are different theories throughout history as theologians try to identify. And some say, well, it's an emperor or a political figure or a system of government that's maintaining peace on the earth. Still others think that the restrainer is a, an angel that will come from heaven. We just don't know. But whatever means are used here on earth, whether there is a, an agent on earth, we know that ultimately it's God, the Holy Spirit, that is holding back the lawless, lawless one, that's restraining evil in God's world. Before this final revolt. But, but here, here's what we need to, here's where we need to land. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, we get this great promise of defeat, this great assurance that when the Lord Jesus comes again, he will appear to all the world, and, and the leader of this great revolt is gonna be destroyed. And I love this image. Just as easily as Jesus breathing, he'll be killed with the, the, the breath of his lips. Just And all evil, all destruction, all pain, all suffering, all godlessness will immediately be blown from the face of the earth and from God's whole universe. But look, there there are two realities that we have to face in this passage as we hope and as we long for the day of Christ's return and His coming and victory. Two realities. First is that lawlessness is already at work in God's world. And if you've been around for at least two to three days on planet Earth, you know that. You've seen it, right? And the second reality is that one day, things are going to get worse. Which I know is not a comforting thought. But we have to deal with the reality that the revolt against God has already begun. That lawlessness is already running rampant in God's world. And that it will culminate in what's described here. But again, as I've said, since Adam and Eve broke God's commandment, humanity has been in rebellion. We've been rebelling against our Creator. But as we draw closer to the day of the Lord, this is going to increase and hostility will increase. Hear this. Rebellion against God, rebellion against His law is the essence of sin. That's what's being described here. It's the essence of sin. And outside of Christ and God's grace, we all have given ourselves into lawlessness. That Greek word, antinomianism, anti-law, usurping the laws of God. And humans live in defiance of God. See, this lawless one who's a megalomaniac, right, thinking he can be God, he's not the only megalomaniac on earth. And most of us are never going to sit down in the temple of God and claim to be God, like apparently this antichrist will, but we all want to be our own God. People claim to divine their own, define their own version of reality, of right and wrong, their own identity. What are they doing? They're making themselves out to be God. I decide who I am. See, across human history, across culture, we've seen the rise of evil. And it manifests as crime, as the travesty and the plague of abortion, of drug addiction that tears apart lives and homes and families and cultures, divorce, In our own day and age, we see a redefining of of what marriage even is. We see a rise in a distorted, harmful view of sexuality, of gender, sex trafficking that still pervades in our world, sexual sin of every kind, child abuse, slavery, even going on now in the 21st century, racism and violence and murder and greed and deceit. Yeah, Yeah, lawlessness is even now at work in our world. We say well thanks pastor tim what am i to do with that how do we process this some of us are just shocked we're shocked by what we read in the scriptures we're shocked by what we hear in the news and we just want to tone it out it's too much we can't handle it some of us are scared we, we hear about we see in our own community we see in the world what's going on we read here and and we're full of fear it, it can't get anywhere what do you mean it's going to get worse how could it possibly be any worse we think to ourselves some of us just get angry. We just are full of rage when we see people turn from God. When we see those defy against God and we're in our blood boils. So, some of us just get apathetic. And we're like, man, I got my own problems. I, I can't deal with, with all this end times. I can't deal with this global revolt. Like, can I, can I just maybe get through tomorrow? And we feel apathetic. Some of us, you know what? We feel worried. And we think, if this is truly the reality that we have to live in, like, has God forgotten us? Did He not have a good plan? Like, why would the Lord allow this to happen to His world? And we feel worried. But again, there are two comforting truths in this passage. Two comforting truths that we read in verse 8. And the first is that lawlessness is restrained. Because for some of us, things feel out of control, don't they? They feel like things have just spiraled. Spiraled. But I want you to hear this like a raging rabid pit bull chained up in the yard. Satan and evil are on a leash. And they can only go so far as far as God in his good plan intends. And whatever lawlessness, whatever revolt, revolt, whatever rebellion and evil that you see, know this, it is under the restraint of God's plan. And that should give you peace. That does give us peace. Because what we read about here in this text, what we see going on in our schools, in our workplaces, in our communities, in our nation, and in our world, this is not something out of God's control. Have peace. We read here that evil is restrained. But secondly, this revolt, and ultimately the lawless one that will one day appear to lead this revolt, he is no match for Jesus, right? There is no evil that threatens Our Lord Jesus, like blowing out a birthday candle, when that day comes, He will just... And instantly, it disappears. The entire revolt against God will one day crumble like blowing down a house of cards. There is no real battle at the end of the day. It, It is not Satan versus God. It is God ruling. And Satan on a chain... To accomplish God's purposes. So friends, let's not be alarmed. Let's not be alarmed even now at the revolt that we see against God. Again the reminder comes to stand firm, to hold on to the truth of God's word. And we do need to brace ourselves, we need to brace ourselves personally against the influence of sin, because as, as shocking and disgusting and and, and and vile as some of these things are that we see going on, we can be influenced, and so we need to commit ourselves to purity. Commit ourselves to purity. We need to cry cry out daily for God's Spirit. For God's Spirit to protect us and our family and our church. For God's Spirit to work in the world. To restrain evil. And we need to lean into one another. We need to lean into one another in the church. For the strength to go on. Hear the words that the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 4. Every spirit. That means every person, every movement, every idea that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Somebody please say amen. Guys, don't be alarmed. Because Jesus in you is greater than Satan in the world. Do you hear that? Jesus at work in you, at work in the church, is greater than the enemy's work in the world. And so we can have peace and we can stand firm. But there's a last section here beginning in verse 9 because the passage goes on to describe in more detail how this enemy is at work in the world. As we read earlier, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan himself. And at the hands of this lawless one, it says that Satan is going to manifest all kinds of false miracles and false signs and wonders. Things that, that sort of mimic God, but they're counterfeit and people will be led astray. Verse 10 says that these counterfeit acts of deception that will happen at the end of the age are going to draw many people away from the truth, and even now they do. Draw many people away from life with God into, into lies and deception. What does it say in verse 10? They perish. Why? Why do people die? Why do people live away from the Lord? Because they refuse to love the truth of the gospel. The only truth that could save them, they refuse to love. Guys, hear this this morning. I mean, we're we're living hope. You guys are sitting here listening to a 45-minute expository message, right? The second point of our mission statement is to embrace truth. We love truth, right? But do we truly love it? See, it's not just knowing the truth, right? It's not just having a lot of biblical head knowledge. It's not just about giving mental assent to the truths of the Bible, to knowing a lot of verses. It's not even, hear me out, it's not even just about believing the truth. Yeah, of course, I believe those things. But loving the truth. They perished because they didn't love the truth. Friends, we need to cling to it with passion, with dedication. We need to build our lives on the truth of God's Word, on the hope of Christ, on the hope of what He's done in the past to save us, and on the hope of what He's doing when He comes again to restore humanity. Do we love that? Do we turn to it every day? Or do we, as I often find myself, look to other things thinking they'll bring comfort or or peace? And yes, I believe those things, but, but what do I really love? We need to love the truth. Love our Savior Jesus. Love who He is and what He's doing. And so verse 11 says, because there are some that refuse to love the truth of Christ, God sends a deluding influence so that they wander away into what is false, sealing the fate that they've chosen for themselves. Now, some of us read verse 11 and we're like, that's not supposed to be in the Bible. Say what? Right? The idea, this is surprising and unsettling what we read here in verse 11. The idea that God has any active role at all in the delusion that these people give themselves into. But in the scriptures, hear this, God's sovereignty is at work even over sin, even over Satan, even over evil, even over unbelief, all for His good purposes. And yes, people make their own choice. They make their own choice to turn from God and reject the only truth that can save them. And in response, God further hardens their heart. See, those who turn from God into sin, you know what their punishment is? They're given over into more sin. And they become enslaved to their own sin. We see this When Moses stood before Pharaoh, the book of Exodus says that Pharaoh hardened his heart before God. And the Bible also says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Paul in Romans chapter 1 would say that when people exchange the glory of God and they give themselves into foolish, futile idols, God gives them over to the impure lusts of their hearts. And we are given over into sin for those that choose to walk in sin. But ultimately, it's each individual person who bears responsibility for their choice to embrace God or reject Him. They give themselves over to this false delusion. What is this false delusion? What is it that people believe that causes them to despise God, to seek to overthrow God? What is it that people believe that would lead them away from the only truth that has the potential to save them? What is this false delusion of Satan? I think it comes in three primary forms. The first form is is that there simply is no God. There is no God kind of a subset of this, is that, well, He's just irrelevant. I don't need Him. And whether you deny the existence of God or whether you believe that that He's irrelevant, the the end result is I can live on my own. That's what atheism, agnosticism, humanism is. I I live on my own. I don't need God. That's a delusion, friends. We need our Creator. The second form of the delusion is is that, well, yeah, I believe in God, but I believe He's against me. And some some believe that God is against them and, and He's keeping them from a good life. And people believe this false idea, this rumor that is spread, that true happiness is found outside of God's will. Because God's will, they will say, is cruel and restrictive. And His expectations don't mean me to life. It's like living in a straitjacket, they will say. and And, and they believe that somehow God and His will is against them. But the third way this manifests is, is is that I just don't deserve God. Yeah, maybe there's a God. Yeah, maybe He's good, but, but I don't deserve Him. And people fall into this, this self-deception that they are not good enough, that they are too broken, too guilty to deserve God's love. And people think, well, He couldn't possibly forgive me. He couldn't possibly welcome me into His kingdom. I'm so grateful for the courage of that woman that shared that testimony on the video. She said, I I had an abortion. I ended my pregnancy. But I found forgiveness. I found the love of God. As I went through those, those three forms of deception this morning, if there is anyone here who believes that there is no God, if you believe that He is not relevant to your life, friends, know today the true reality is that there is a God who wants to be intimately involved with every thought, every word, every deed in your life. If there's anyone here today that believes that somehow God is against you, that he doesn't have your best in mind, that somehow if you follow him, he'll, he'll take things from you or he'll make life hard for you, will you know today that that's a lie? God, God created you to give you life. He created you to draw Him into your presence to experience abundance. And that can only be found in relationship with Him. And if there's anyone here today that believes you can't be forgiven, that believes that who you are, or what you've done is too bad for God, know that His love can push through and overwhelm any guilt, any shame that you carry right now. No one here in this room is outside of God's love and His grace. No one here is unworthy enough or dirty enough or broken enough that God can't reach. God is here. God is for you. And through Christ you can know His love and you can know His grace. That's why Jesus came, I assure you. Jesus came to die for your sin. To rise from the dead that we could be reborn. We are reborn into life with God. Verse 12 says that everyone that turns from these truths that does not believe, people that that find pleasure and delight in unrighteous things, tragically, they find themselves condemned. And we read that last week, that they are cast out, separated from God for all of eternity. You, You ever wonder why so many people Live apart from God? You ever why for some wonder why it's so difficult for people to believe the truth, to come to God? I mean, it seems like a pretty good deal, right? You, we don't have to do anything other than just fall on our knees and, and, and confess our sin, and Jesus fills us and restores us, and we get eternal life. Why is that so hard to believe? What does verse 12 say? People find pleasure in life outside of God. They find pleasure in unrighteousness, and I'm here to tell you what the Bible tells that there is a degree in pleasure. There's a degree of pleasure in unrighteous worldly things. The author of Hebrews says that we can find enjoyment in the fleeting pleasure of sin. And, and yeah, there are things outside of God that that may, for a time, give physical pleasure or, or or may build you up or may give purpose to your life. But 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 hear this, young people, hear this: the pleasure that sin brings is fleeting. It is temporary. It is shallow. Sin, every single time, is a letdown. It never delivers what you hope it will. And you think it'll feel good. You think sexual pleasure. You think the pursuit of greed. You, th- you think you think uh, 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 substance abuse. You think rebellion. You think somehow these things will bring you what you long for. It will always be a, a letdown. It will never deliver. Sin always fails to meet your expectations. It always leaves you emptier than when you started. Only yearning for more. And if you don't believe me, just find someone that's ever struggled with addiction and they will tell you every hit leaves them emptier than the one before. Every drink left them feeling more empty than they started. Ask anybody that's ever explored sexual perversion if those things satisfied them. No matter how many women you sleep with, no matter how many sexual experimentations you, you take, You're never going to find the fulfillment. It just leaves you craving one more. Ask anybody that's ever set their heart on the greedy pursuit of wealth. Wealth will never satisfy. Was it Rockefeller? Somebody asked one time, how much money is enough? And he said, just one dollar more. That's what sin is. It's just a little bit more, but you never get there. The pleasure of sin is fleeting. Only God knows the path of abundant life. You want to find pleasure and joy and peace and hope and meaning. Only in His presence do we find the fullness of joy, the Scriptures say. Only in God's hands is there pleasure, not just now, but for all of eternity. And so as we close this morning, we come back to that, that question. Will we hold on to the truth? You have to decide. Are you going to build your house on the sand? The sand of your own selfish pursuits? The sand of the false promises of the world? Or will you be like the wise man, the wise woman, who builds her house on the life Of Christ, who builds your life on the rock of Christ. Because listen to what Jesus said. Look at these promises on the screen. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's build our lives on the rock of Christ. And when we hear those rumors and that misinformation, that spreads, that conflicts with God's Word. Let's not be shaken. Don't be shaken by, by rumors. But let's ground ourselves. Let's hold on to what is stable, the truth of God's Word. And brothers and sisters, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed by the rise of sin. Don't be alarmed by the revolt against God going on around us. Hold on to the firm truth that God is still God no matter what happens tomorrow. And He is still good. And He still has a plan. Don't be alarmed. And brothers and sisters, don't be lured away. Because some of those deceptions seem appealing. Some of those pleasures of godlessness at times catch our attention. But we need to hold on to the truth that God directs our path. That He brings us into ultimate pleasure and joy. Hold on to the Lord Jesus. Amen. Worship team, come lead us. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Even as we wrestle, we hold on to its truth. Even as we find ourselves distracted, we hold on to the truth of Your Word. Even at times when we feel discouraged, we hold on to the truth of Christ. And we acknowledge this morning that that not only is there a God, but that God is good. Not only are You a good God, but You are for us. Not only are You for us, but You have a plan and a purpose for us. And so help us to be people of hope and perseverance that hold firm on Christ, that stand firm in Christ. God, help us to not be alarmed or scared or lured away. We don't want to be people of fear, but people of confidence and assurance. And so we worship this morning and we acknowledge that we will not be afraid because of who Christ is and because of what He's done. We acknowledge that, that our God is a God of victory. We long for the day when Jesus returns and blows and evil vanishes. And we stand in hell and worship the God of angel armies. The God who does battle for us. The God who had victory on the cross. The same God that will come again in victory. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and worship. Stand together and sing praise.